We are in 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse 23 is where we'll pick up this morning as we endeavor to finish this chapter and go into chapter 18. One of the great things about verse-by-verse teaching is if you have a technical problem or a tornado or anything else, you just stop right there and pick it up next time. Don't have to be in a hurry. 1 Kings chapter 17, we're glad you joined us. Last week we learned about faith from a widow woman. And we learned about faith from the prophet Elijah. And then we learned about the faithfulness from the God who provided for them. When God provided an endless supply of meal and oil for the widow woman, and then brought her dead son back to life, he did so for the purpose of glorifying himself. And when God glorifies himself, he's glorified in his people. I love how he does that. We benefited from this passage by learning to have unwavering faith, even when our lives and the lives of our children are at stake. And now verse 23, And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. The prophet brings the living child down, but he claims no credit for himself. And the widow gives glory to God by recognizing that the man of God was sent with the message of God. So she can believe the mouth of the man of God who was sent with the message of God. God prepared this widow a long time before this event took place, before this miracle. He did it by commanding her to sustain Elijah. And she had to trust in God's provision to do that. And when she saw that God's provision was sufficient in the matter of the meal and the cruise of oil, their faith was strengthened. And then when her son died, she who trusted God's provision could also trust God's protection. In God's hands, her son was secure. And God saw fit to return his life to him. Chapter 18, verse 1. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The third year. That would most likely be the third year after what happened in chapter 17, verse 1, where Elijah went to Ahab and said, There shall not be rain nor dew these three years, but according to my word. And this signified that it would at least be two years before it would rain, because the word is plural. But James chapter 5 verse 17 is where we see the exact amount of time that it didn't rain. James 5 17. Where he said, Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of Three years and six months. Verse 2. 
And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Sore famine happens when there is no rain or dew. The word sore is mighty. Nothing grows during a mighty famine when there's no dew or rain. Elijah could have had many objections here when God sent him back to Ahab. He could have said, Lord, I'm, I'm afraid of Ahab. I gave him a forecast of drought. I was the bearer of bad news. How can I show my face to him again? Elijah could have said, well, I'm afraid of Jezebel as well because she killed many of the Lord's prophets. Or he could have said, I'm afraid of the Israelites, the people, because the drought I forecasted by your command brought great suffering upon them as well. But God's plan is not altered because of the fear of man. And Elijah shows great faith here. It doesn't appear that he flinched at all when he was ordered to return to Samaria, to Ahab. You see this in other places in the Bible. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel at Lystra. And in Acts 14, verses 19 through 20, listen to what it says. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Paul was in Lystra. He was drug out of the city and he was stoned. What did he do when he woke up? He went right back into Lystra. And if you read a few verses down in verses 21 through 22 of that same chapter, it said, Now this is after he's been stoned. After he returned to Lystra, after he left for, for Derby, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we through that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Had Paul not gone through this tribulation, perhaps some of those to whom he preached would have said, well, that's easy preaching, but that's hard living. Paul lived it. Amazingly, the beating, the religious persecution that he suffered in Lystra had no bearing on whether he would return to that city. Just as Elijah's fear, if he had it, would have no bearing on him returning to Ahab, where he had once delivered this terrible news. The confirmation and the exhortation of the disciples was a work of God that could not be put aside. God's work always wins the day over man's fears, every time. For Elijah, the work of God in Samaria trumped any fears he may have had. So what did Elijah do? He took his own counsel. The same counsel he gave to that widow woman when he said, Fear not. Well, he feared not. And he went into Samaria. Watch how God's worked. 
He sent Elijah to a widow. And that widow was in sore famine. And God filled her basket. Now he sends Elijah to a land that was in sore famine. Not only physically, but spiritually. In fact, the physical famine was brought about by the spiritual famine. And the way people try to fix that is backwards. We know this truth well because Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6 in that Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 through 33. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. He taught his disciples, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In Samaria, Israel, there was a sore famine. And those people too must have asked, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? But their real need was to seek first the kingdom of God. And all those things would be added unto them. Verse 3. And they have called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. And Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. There are several Obadiahs in the Old Testament. And if you want to look at the time periods and who was on the throne in the Old Testament between this book and the time of Obadiah the prophet wrote that very short book against Edom, you'll probably come to the conclusion these are two different prophets. God doesn't specifically tell us, at least from what I study, this is the same Obadiah who wrote this other prophecy. So there are several of them. But remember, it's God's word, so whether he used Obadiah or Otis to write the text, it's not that critical unless God makes it critical. If he wants us to know who wrote it, he'll plainly tell us. And if not, then we'll still know that it's God's word. But Obadiah here, he's the governor of the house, and he reminds me a little bit of Joseph, actually a lot of Joseph, who was also a governor, according to Genesis chapter 42, verse 6. And like Obadiah, Joseph feared the Lord greatly. You know, God places his people in some of the most unlikely locations. And it's where he wants them. Even in the den of lions, he places his people. Or in the house of a wicked king or a wicked pharaoh. And just as Joseph was governor over the land of Egypt during the drought, so Obadiah was governor over the king's house during this drought. The governor is one who has power, who is able to represent the authority under whom he serves. And that's going to be important in Obadiah's ministry and how the Lord uses him shortly. Verse 4. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets. Now, let me stop there. This verse is defining the parentheses that were in verse 3. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so. 
In other words, you're about to learn how it is that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. What evidence may be found? For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So fifty in one cave, fifty in another cave. These prophets of the Lord were competitors with the prophets of Baal, at least in the eyes of Jezebel. There's really no competition except in the eyes of the prophets of Baal. Similarly, the radical Muslims today cut off God's people because in their eyes we're in competition with their preachers. This is the devil's method of operation. It's not ours. We don't. We wish to Presbyterian's psalm service, although the psalm was probably a lovely one, didn't bleed over, but we're not going to go over there and take some sort of physical action against them because they're competing with our, our sound waves here. And we're not going to go down the road to a church that's preaching heresy and hold them at gunpoint and make them convert. That's not how our God works. And while we wholeheartedly disagree with every religion, with every preacher, preaches another gospel, as Paul said, which is not another. We don't kill them for doing so. We leave them with God the same way Gamaliel left them with God in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, a doctor of the law. Uh, as far as I can tell, probably the same one that who speak the apostle Paul were. Peter, in Acts chapter 5, had just preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Jews were fit to be tied. They took counsel to slay him and his fellow apostles. But just before they did, Gamaliel, this Pharisee, intervened. And he proclaimed the following truth. And I'll read you verses 34 through 39. Out of Acts chapter 5, verses 34 through 39. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to up. And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. They were scattered. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. And that's the faith that we have in our God. We don't have to go out and defeat every religion of the devil by killing them and putting them in prison and all of that, we leave them with God. Because if what they're saying is not of God, it's going to come to naught. 
the continuation of this truth, as Gamaliel stated before, is that if this gospel is not of God, then those who preach it, those who follow the false preachers, will all perish. But, as the radical Muslims of today, Jezebel decided to kill off the opposition to the prophets of Baal, rather than submitting them to God. And it says in verse 4, that Obadiah, at the end of the verse, fed them with bread and water. Fed them with bread and water. They've been hidden in a cave. He fed them with bread and water. Now, perhaps you're beginning to see the importance of Obadiah's position as governor in the king's house, as one who has some control over the food, over the the water that's, that's remaining there in that country. He had access to the king's provisions, and he had access to it because God was going to use that to sustain his own prophets. Even when the rest of the land was in a famine. Don't miss that. Even when the rest of the land was in a sore famine, God took care of his prophets through Obadiah's hand. Let's learn a, a vital truth from this. This goes against the grain of common thinking. It goes against the grain of the way most people see uh, spiritual things. And that is, no matter what, God's work must never fail. And no matter what, God's work will never fail. Even at the price of a nation going broke, dying of hunger, having no provisions, God's work is still the most important thing. There's going to come a time when God's people, perhaps you and me, will be in a cave, spiritually speaking, or maybe even physically. Eating bread and water, trusting in the Lord for the most basic earthly needs. All things like this will be useless or taken from us. But we'll be trusting God for the most basic earthly needs. So the time of prosperity, I don't know when it's happening, but it's going to come to an end. If you don't believe that, ask the people of Venezuela. If you've been around very long, you may remember when gasoline in Venezuela was 18 cents a gallon. And the people thought socialism was the greatest thing. Look, gasoline is 18 cents a gallon, and this is free, and this is free. Everything is free. Now the government controls the gas, and they have for some time, and it sells for over $7 a gallon, up to $40 a gallon on the black market. People who once feasted have been standing in line for hours and even days to get the bare minimum necessities. Prosperity is coming to an end. But these prophets in a cave were worse off than that. They didn't even have cars to drive where they had to worry about gasoline. And yet, they trusted in God's provision by the hand of Obadiah. You notice when Obadiah hid them in the cave, apparently they stayed there. They didn't say, oh, what are we going to do? They stayed there, and God provided for them. In a dark place, a cave, God's prophet gave them bread to eat and water to drink, 
And in the darkness of this world, in the cave of this world, God gives his people bread to eat. That's Jesus. And water to drink. That's the word of God. And even if our bodies starve to death, we will wait in the cave of this dark world until Jesus comes to take us home. Verse 5. Now we've learned about Obadiah. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks, peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. Remember the promise from God through Elijah to Ahab was that there would be no rain or dew upon the earth. But God was merciful not to dry up all the fountains and the brooks at that very time, or nobody would have lived another day. God was good to leave some water in the land. What lesson could Ahab have learned from this? Oh, many. But in Psalm chapter 52 and verse 1, David wrote, Why boastest thyself in mischief? Almighty man, the goodness of God endureth continually. Did you hear that? The goodness of God endureth continually. And then Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? If we put those two verses together, we arrive at a wonderful truth. Here's how it goes. God's goodness is continuous. God's goodness leads us to repent. So God's continual goodness gives us the continual opportunity to repent. How wonderful is that? Those who repent do so because of the goodness of God. Nobody who repents just stops in their tracks one day and says, you know what, I think I'm tired of this way of living or this way of thinking. I'm going to go find someone else. How about you, Lord? No, it's the goodness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good, isn't it? Because the gospel is good news. The gospel is the reflection of the goodness of God. Those who repent do so because of the goodness of God. But those who refuse to repent do so in spite of the goodness of God. Either way, you have to deal with the goodness of God, don't you? You have to deal with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to answer that question that Pilate asked, What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? What then shall I do with the goodness of God? Shall I repent? Or shall I stay in my sin and do despite for that spirit of grace? In Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 34 through 35, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 34 through 35, there came a time when the Levites, well, first of all, the Israel, the seed of Israel separated themselves from the strangers for it. And then the Levites got up and confessed their sin and spoke to the seed of Israel. And here's what they said. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. 
For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them. And in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turn they from their wicked works. Did you see that? They did not serve God in the great goodness that he gave them. They did not turn from their wicked works. So the goodness of God was before them, and it was continual. And the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. So all they had to do is repent at the goodness of God. And yet they despised the goodness of God rather than being led to repentance. Because they turned not from their wicked works. And this describes Ahab. And this describes Jezebel. And much of Samaria as well. And it describes the unbeliever today. Verse 6. So they, that's Ahab and Obadiah, divided the land between them to pass throughout it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. What is it that they were looking for? Grass. The feet of mules and horses. Now this king has a famine in his land. There's no dew or rain. And the waters are drying up gradually. What's he worried about? Ahab went out to seek earthly food that would soon perish with the eating. And in sending Obadiah, the man of God, the man who feared the Lord greatly, in sending him out to do that in the other part of the country, he underused the man of God who was sitting in his own house. And rather than asking Obadiah to pray for him, to pray for Israel, that they might repent and return to the Lord their God, he sent God's men out to do a carnal task for a carnal reason. Now that is underusing the man of God. When people say they want their church to become a food pantry or a clothing distributor or a place where kids can meet and have movie night, what they're essentially doing is sending the pastor and the church into the world to find grass. Grass for the mules. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the world feed the world. Those are compassionate endeavors. But they are an underuse of the church. The world has spiritual problems. And those who have led to carnal problems. God said it would be so, didn't he? As he told Cain, or he told uh, Adam, that the man would till the ground in the sweat of his brow. He reaped thorns and thistles along the way. And because it has not sought its creator, this world has toiled and suffered for its clothing and for its food ever since the fall of man. And the world wants the spiritual hospital church to use carnal methods to treat carnal problems rather than asking the church to, to treat the spiritual wounds with spiritual methods from God's word. Isn't that something? How the world says, well, let the church do that. Well, the, the church ought to be doing this and the church ought to be doing that. Oh, our assignment's very narrow. There are things we do within the body of Christ that are very compassionate. Preaching the gospel being the most compassionate of all. 
I'd like to feed somebody and feed them and feed them and keep feeding them and feed your next generation. And they all died and go to hell. You said, oh, but they were well fed. There was grass for the mules. We went out and found grass for the mules. And by God's grace, this church will provide to this world the meat that never perishes. Rather than that which perishes with the eating, we'll preach of the clothing that moth and rust cannot corrupt. And we'll preach of treasures that thieves cannot break through and steal. Ahab has it all backwards. Rather than going out and sending the man of God out to look for mules and grass, he should stay home and seek the Lord, not roam and look for the grass. Look back in our text in verse 6. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. This reminds us of Lot and Abram, doesn't it? We know Ahab did not go out by faith. He went out by sight. He's looking for grass. He's not looking for the will of God, or he would have never had to step foot outside the palace. In Genesis 13 and verse 10, Genesis 13, verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes. That's exactly what Ahab did. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zohar. And whichever way Ahab took, Obadiah went the other way. And whichever way Obadiah went, he knew he could trust God for the result. And that result would either be we're going to find grass through the mules, or we're not going to find grass through the mules. But he left that in God's hand. The fact that Ahab went one way and Obadiah went the other way is a testimony of Ahab's faithful or Ahab's confidence in Obadiah's faithfulness. Did you get that? Ahab's an unbeliever. He's a member of the church of the golden calf, married to a Baal worshiper. And yet he was still able to have confidence in Obadiah, the man of God, though he disagreed wholeheartedly with his religious convictions. He knew Obadiah was a man of character. From a moral perspective, was there anything wrong with the simple act of going out and looking for grass for the horses and mules? Well, not for Obadiah, because he still feared the Lord greatly. Assuming you are gainfully and legally employed, or gainfully and legally retired, your supervisors, your co-workers, your neighbors, everyone around you, should be able to do the same thing Ahab did with Obadiah. Send you with a trusted task. Send you out to do something and have complete confidence that you're going to do it well. Right now, they should be able to give a glowing testimony about your faithfulness to your workplace. Let me ask you. Don't raise your hand. Don't shake your head or nod it. But would you be worried if you found out that the pastor spoke with your co-workers about you? Just drop by one day when you weren't there. Would they say you're a bright light in your office, in your workshop? Or would they say you're negative, foul-mouthed, unreliable? Would they say you're punctual or would they say, oh, it's usually late work? Would they say your books are balanced or would they call you a thief? Even though they may be unbelievers as Ahab was, 
your boss, your co-workers, your neighbors should be able to give a good report about you. Because of what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. That's Colossians 3, verses 22 through 23. This principle is there. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And that's why case of a work environment, even your unbelieving boss can have some confidence in you. One more thing about this and we'll move on. If we as Obadiah are faithful in the carnal things, in the earthly things, then our employers and those around us will have more reason to listen to us when we talk about spiritual things. You're late for work every day, and then one day you try to sit down and tell your coworker about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what's on their mind? Oh, you hypocrite, you can't even show up to work on time. They miss out on a wonderful message. Everything we do goes on a spiritual resume in the eyes of those around us. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was in the way, Elijah met him, and he knew him fell on his face and said, Art thou that my Lord Elijah? It said as Obadiah was in the way. You see, there was just one way for Obadiah to be found in, and that was the Lord's way. That word is also translated as road or journey. The word way. That was the, the way the Lord wanted him to be on. And it's only there, on that way, the way, that Obadiah would find Elijah or be found with Elijah. And it said he knew him, that is, Obadiah knew Elijah. Most likely, Obadiah, being the governor of Ahab's house, was within the hearing and possibly within sight of Elijah when Elijah delivered the drought forecast to the palace. And here he calls him, my Lord, and we'll close with this, and we're about out of time. He said, my Lord, you notice the word Lord here, not capitalized. And Obadiah is not calling Elijah Lord as in Jehovah. And we know by verse 3 in this chapter that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So he would not call Elijah by the name Lord, by the name Jehovah, or any of the other names of God. It simply meant my master. One who ranks above me. That will stop. Lord willing, pick up with verse 8 next week. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your faithfulness, for your word, for the Spirit of God who teaches us through the frail instrument of human mouth. And Lord, I pray that from our presence you would take all these distractions that compete with our thoughts that try to steer us away the truth that we need to meditate upon. Help us to accept this, to believe it, and to act on it in faith. What you taught us today, in Jesus' name.